Hi, I'm Rosie Acosta. I'm a meditation teacher, speaker, and author of You Are Radically Loved, a healing journey to self-love. Look, I grew up in East Los Angeles during the 92 LA riots, and it set me on a troubled path. I didn't grow up with mentors in my life, so I turned to reading as many books as I possibly could to learn about the purpose of life. In my journey, I found that having these conversations gave me life, and I decided I wanted to create a place where I could share these conversations with my community. So come have a sit with me as we learn about, well, everything. Hello, welcome back to the Radically Loved Podcast. I have the pleasure of reintroducing you to Candice Kumai, who you all probably know and love because she is one of our favorite guests and a very good friend of Rosie Acosta's. And I get to talk to her today about her amazing new Audible original book, Spirited. Among other things we'll talk about, because you're just a wealth of knowledge, Candace, and I could just sit here and listen to your voice and your wisdom all day long. And she's joining us from her beautiful home in New York. Are you in Brooklyn? Yeah, I'm in Brooklyn now, right across. There it's, there's New there York. There it is. Manhattan. Oh. But yeah, it's nice to be off the rock, as we say. But, you know, we're one stop away, one stop away from the East Village. Nice. <laughs> It's gorgeous. Oh, I'm jealous. <laughs> but happy for you. Because yeah. you know, Tessa, that I took a couple years off of New York. And I, I mean, Rosie knows this. I was like, every time we went out or any time that I talked to a friend, I'd be like, I miss New York so much. Mm-hmm. And I think you talk about it all the time. And then finally, one day, I still can't believe that me and my partner moved back. Like I... Sometimes I have to pinch myself when I wake up here and be like, you really did it. It was so intense too, because we only had like two weeks in between LA and New York to sort of get our shit together. And a bi-coastal move is, it's a lot. So it's, it is nice to be back in the city that kind of made me into who I was or am. Ever. Yeah. <laughs> when you lived there, uh, we were just talking about this for about a decade, right? In your 20s and 30s. Yeah. I'd like to tell people that if you can live here in your 20s and 30s, it's like getting a, a second, you know, MBA, another degree. It's like a hard knock culture that teaches you the ins and outs of everything from like societal norms to media, publishing, branding, the best of the best as far as I've met, live out here. And even if they take breaks like I have, you get sucked into the vortex here. And New York has a beautiful way of keeping you here or spitting you out. You know, it's not for everyone, but I definitely seem to feel like it's my favorite drug of choice. (laughs) That's awesome. Well, I was curious if the move coincided with, with your book Spirited, which came out April 27th. Is, was there some sort of intersection there with the writing of the book, the publishing of the book, the move to New York? I didn't know when I was writing Spirited that I would move back while I was writing. I made the decision towards the very end of the editing, like the last like five or six rounds. I was like, I'm going to move back. And I sort of put it out into the universe, even though I had no plans in motion. So I suppose without even thinking about it, that manifestation is 
a real thing and that I did come back to do what I started, which was you and I kind of talking earlier, Tessa, about like the pivot. And so wellness is a beautiful thing and spirituality is a great branch in wellness. But I think cooking and food are probably, it's something I can't really escape. And I've noticed also, like, I don't, there are not very many half Japanese, half European girls teaching about multicultural foods. And, and as you know, like Japanese food and how special it is, or just cooking with real foods in general that have this extensive background of like Iron Chef, B. Bobby Flay, magazine editor, like seven books. And so I just said, I don't know if I want to be part of this crazy climate of wellness people in Los Angeles and New York getting lost in the wild, wild west with no regulation. So I'm, I think I'm just going to go back to food and cooking. So the decision was sort of made in this audiobook. Mm-hmm. And here we are, you know, and it was, Tessa, it was, I feel like it happened in like a New York minute too. I love that. Well, tell me about Spirited. So I've had the pleasure of, you know, getting to listen to it before this conversation. And so it's been so lovely to have you in my ears on a daily basis. And your storytelling is just, I love it. I love it when you talk about your relationship with your mother and when you do her voice, it's like the cutest thing ever. Yeah, but just the storytelling and the wisdom. Will you tell us a little bit about Spirited? What what drew you to writing this? And what do you hope people get out of it? Tessa, thank you for listening to the Audible original. It is so wonderful when women take time to read or or even if it's just like two chapters in someone's book before a meeting, an interview, a video shoot, you know, not everybody does it. So yeah. <laughs> sometimes you like say stuff during an interview and, and they're like, well, I didn't know that about you. And I don't know. I mean, there's so much, like we said earlier, it's the wild, wild west now. Like so much has changed and, and everybody thinks they're a professional now at whatever they're doing. So It was really interesting, I think, to write something that was not comfortable for me to write about. So I love that you noted about my mother. She's my favorite person in the world. And she's also a person that I had a tumultuous relationship with. Same with my father. You know, I have yet to be able to even, I don't even know how to speak about some moments in my childhood. I'm sure everybody can relate to this because they're so painful. And my parents were immigrants. My father's from Poland. My mother's from Japan. So a lot of the stories in the book are related to if you're mixed, if you're an immigrant, if you feel like you just don't belong, maybe you've been in our industry of media and wellness for a long time and you feel like you're not getting anywhere or nobody hears you or sees you. A lot of this stuff comes from that past childhood trauma. And so with the book, it was writing about a lot of uncomfortable things, which I knew that people with the freedom of reviews and such, that some people would not understand my pain or my my own struggles and suffering. And I ask every person that reads a book or hears somebody's Audible original to not write a poor review because here's why. Is women like say Tessa, Rosie, et cetera, a bunch of our friends. It's our livelihood to write these 
beautiful pieces of artwork. It is very scary and brave and nervous, like nerve wracking and also Mm -hmm. very just embarrassing to have to write about our biggest pain and struggles and our family dynamic. And maybe people that write poor reviews might say, well, she certainly doesn't look like she's gone through much or it doesn't sound like it to me. But the difference between a comment that's poor and just leaving it alone if you're not interested in the book is somebody committing suicide, somebody taking a next step to say their depression goes down 10 notches that day. It will affect somebody's mental health. And as artists, never have we lived in a time where it was so open for people to judge who we are in our most vulnerable moments. So while I loved writing on my story, and thank you for the kind comments, Tessa, like the storytelling with the family dynamic of war or famine or my POW grandfather in Poland, like these are all things that funnel back to wellness. And they, what the intent was, was that you go home, Tessa, and you start to think about your family's lineage from two generations ago and how your grandparents' lives might actually be affecting you right in Washington state. Yeah, I love and it's that's exactly what happened for me and I I've done some research on my own about the science behind epigenetics how that is such a real thing and I've always always been so so aware of my ancestry, my background, my personal history. It's always been like this kind of shadow. You also talk about shadow a lot in the book, which I just love. And that's a topic I definitely want to touch on next, um, the importance of the shadow work. But I just so resonated with you telling your story in terms of why it's important to not only honor our family lineage, but also to understand it and understand as a person, as we from childhood to adolescence to adulthood, react to things in a certain way, are triggered by things in a certain way, or are called to things in a certain way. And you're right, it funnels back to childhood. So I so appreciate you making that a central theme in the book, because it's it's been so true in my life. I really resonate with it. Almost to, I feel like I kind of obsess about it personally, but but I have a very, um, I think, interesting, at least on my father's side, very kind of tragic. It's like beautiful. It's almost like Shakespearean when I think about the, like my uh, maternal, uh, my paternal grandmother, and that whole story is just like whoa, it's wild, I and it affects me. Yeah, so go for it deeper and darker than what we would ever know in our lifetime, right? It's like, but it still lives through you. I know I often talk to my like great aunt about the war and how there were bombs virtually dropping outside of their house and neighbors in the rice fields would get killed. And it's like, you don't really know about it until you speak to your ancestors about it. And then it's imperative to talk to your parents about it too at some point and ask them questions because you you honestly will get lost in your own world in the present moment in modern day times when you don't like go back to your roots and really figure out where you were from. And that whole analogy of the tree kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier. There's so many different branches and sectors in your life. And I think every single one has a different place in time. And so you just have to sort of figure out what to go back to 
And I think that was another good thing where I said, I know where I come from. I know who I am. I know my strengths. And so that becomes like sort of the core of your roots and your grandparents and your parents pay, they also pay tribute to those things that are going to come out in your life later for good, for bad, for worse, for ugly, for better. It's all relevant. You know, everybody has a different story and no one person should be able to judge somebody else's pain and suffering and say, this was surface level and mm-hmm. I didn't relate to it because Indeed, most authors are not going to give you every fucking ounce of their life on paper. And it's extremely hurtful, I think, to the artists in our current climate that we get judged so hard for being ourselves. And that was the big thing is I wish people could just let up on others a little bit more and not feel so self-righteous and not feel the need to judge others so quickly based off of one little facet that they're sharing with you on their life. Yeah. And we're just used to it now, but it's tragic, man. It makes anybody with an artist streak fearful of their own future potential and all those projects that you have stored in your heart and mind. You just, all you think about is that you're going to be judged when you put things out now. And it, you know, when I wrote Pretty Delicious in my 20s, I may have been worried about what people would think, but it was more like the performance of the recipe. If Mm -hmm. this toast, this French toast recipe was going to come out right for them or the apple pancakes or whatever the fuck was in that book. So it was so long ago. It just makes you think about how evil wellness and health and culture and yoga, et cetera, has become. Luckily, food is not that bad, but I agree with you. I think wellness needs a full fucking overhaul and cleanse itself. And Rosie and I've talked about it for years now since we've met. I think that the best that we can do is to keep the love and the understanding and the empathy and the compassion and the kindness available to each other when we know that every one of us is suffering a different ailment or a different pain point and that we should just be a little bit more gentle. I honestly sometimes wonder like where the egos came from too. Yeah, yeah, me too. It's it's kind of bizarre. I often think if I'm able to, I'll re- take a step back and remind myself that that judgment, that criticism often comes from a place of misunderstanding or fear of the other, of the unwillingness to, for the person that is doing the judging to look at themselves in the mirror and understand what kind of demons might be driving them to oh, yeah. not be fulfilled in their own life. So if yeah. I can catch myself in that moment of like feeling bad about having created something, put it out into the world and it falls flat or if it gets judged and then just remember like, why did I do this in the first place? Right. Was it so that I could get praise and external accolades or was it because because I am an artist myself and that's what feeds my soul is the writing or the creating of a beautiful yoga class or the creating of an environment that's safe for others to be in. Well, right? I'm so, sorry yeah. that you have had, sorry to interrupt Tessa. No, I'm, just, I'm apologizing on behalf of anyone who's ever come after you or Rosie at with any negativity in the space of a beautiful practice of yoga. It seems absurd But I'm not even surprised because the toxicity has become so 
it's like saturation, right? Like it's gotten more and more loud and bright and just it's everywhere in a way that I don't think we control it anymore. So the human mind and and body and, you know, your heart is what you have to protect. And I think you'll know who to stay close to and, and who to push away from, which I think unfortunately or fortunately, all of us have to do that as we get older, especially as we hit like our forties, et cetera. Yeah. Oh, the forties. I just turned 40 myself this year and so many, a perspective people, shift. So many people have it's yeah. still like there's still the same problems like I still have this obnoxious litigious thing that I have to deal with and have for the last two years so like through the end of my 30s into my 40s I just pray every day that the truth will reveal itself and that all parties end up happy and healthy and sometimes I I wonder you know why these things happen but the shift has been also like trying to compartmentalize the emotional attachment to things that might make us upset and like letting it pass, you know, much like a cloud in the sky instead of dramatizing everything. Like, for instance, if I don't get signed with a manager that I was really excited to work with in the next few weeks, it's not going to be a big deal. In my 40s, I'll say to myself, it wasn't the right fit. And actually the right fit will come along. It always does. And I also suppose if you look at Eckhart Tolle and Titnat Han in any Buddhist practice, they say the same thing over and over that you, why even think, or Michael A. Singer even talks about this in The Untethered Soul, why even think about the future? Because you actually have zero control over what is going to happen and you just don't know. Mm-hmm. So most of us like sit in our suffering that was based off of our past and we so deeply are afraid of things in the future, more than likely, as Michael A. Singer says, none of these things are going to happen. And yet we sit inside of our body, mind, I do it too. I did it this morning while meditating, completely annoyed and worried and just suffering. And I guess like, you know, going to my bar method class really helped. Going for a long walk and back helped. And I think having conversations where we can be very real and know that there are plenty of key players in the wellness space that are still really good people even though Rosie and I always talk about how we're worried about the current climate in which we both work in. Yeah. And this, I think, is very closely related to shadow work, which I was just, it's one of like the very first principles that you kind of unravel in the book in terms of when we're talking about spiritual wellness and wisdom, we really have to look at the shadow side. Like there's no rainbows and butterflies. We can't just sugarcoat these things. These are things that we need to address. And I really appreciated that because there's so many wellness books out there or programs that, you know, it's like that toxic positivity where it's like, how can we create some sort of positive spin on something that just is not positive, right? I'm so glad that you say that too. (laughs) Yeah, I appreciate it. And I'd love to hear you talk about it here, just in terms of I don't know if shadow work felt like something that it was always something you were willing to embrace if that happened throughout this journey back to ancestry, back to Japan, as you wrote this book. 
what was your experience with that? Oh, great question, Tessa. No, I did not ever want to share any of this with anyone and nor did I feel comfortable sharing it. And it took me so long. I mean, this is like my book journey, I think started in my twenties, like maybe 26, 27. And so I'm well over, I think like 14 years or something into books. And I, I wouldn't dare touch showing my dark side to anyone. And it was so dark. There were so many different times where my sister saw it, her friends saw it, close friends of mine saw it, and they thought something was wrong. Or one of them said to my face a couple of years ago, she's like, oh my God, Candace, you have a lot of demons and you were going to have to deal with them. And I actually had never had anyone say that to my face before. So it was also a blessing to have like a British friend be very blunt with me and my sister Oddly enough, and her friend, we were we were all in France at one point when they started to realize like how much I abused alcohol. And then I I did all this work when I left New York on getting rid of the things that I was it was not what people think either. It it was like serial dating, mm. always being codependent on a man or somebody to tell me like validation that I needed about myself. And as a minority female we do have to work like 10 times harder for everything that we do. I mean, there are a lot of people that have said, I can't believe that you're eight books in and like you haven't gotten that show yet. You know, they're like, it's on its way, but it is kind of, it's almost like uncanny to get to this level where you're like, I thrive on camera. I mean, this is my, my home and live TV, cooking TV shows, And I think being graceful and patient is the name of the game. And there's so much competition out there now. And I think being much more real with people with the blessing of podcasts has been very useful, especially during like the time of COVID. And it was a blessing to show people like that I was not perfect and that you, you aren't either and it's okay And we all have these horrible addictions and demons. And I constantly ran from every problem I had. I abused sleeping pills for many, many years and not thinking that it was even a big deal. And then I had to teach myself that, you know, these men were not for me. The pills were not for me. And I knew better. So once I knew better and I started seeing a therapist, uh, regular visits and also talking to friends who are professionals. And I thank every one of them. They all know who they are. And it really helped to also meet a healthy partner and to make a better choice about dating somebody who is very stable, emotionally available and emotionally intelligent. And these are not traits that we're taught to look for in a partner, but now they are because I think we've all gotten to a point where we realize how toxic dating also can be. And I want people to know, you know, I didn't find him until I was 38 and neither did my own sister. And it's fine. You know, there's no rush to the fucking altar and I'm not married. I don't care that much about marriage. And I, I don't think it's a big deal. Like, I think everybody should do what makes them feel good. 
So we, the more honest and open that we are, and, and if you are married, like good for you, amazing. You know, I've been in nine weddings as a bridesmaid. It's great. It's what works for you is not my place to judge. What works for me is just me doing my fucking thing. And I like cats like you and they make me happy and I don't really give a fuck about anything else. And I wish life could be that simple. You know, I wish it was just cats, but yeah, you know, we me too. <laughs> <laughs> I love that black cats in particular, my favorite. Yes. yes. <laughs> I wanted to talk about, well, there's several things from the book that I wanted to pull on a little bit more Ikigai, yes. which let me see if I can accurately, I'm not going to go so far as to say I'm going to define it, but the essence of Ikigai, I believe is like, at your calling or seeking your calling. Yes. When you find your life's purpose in your community, you will thrive. And when you, when you like get it, like we were talking about earlier, this is an easy scenario and it, it seems so dumb, right? But I figured this out over the last three months. So I started in cooking and I moved to wellness and beauty and then, you know, sort of hovered over spirituality, which is the new book. And then I went to a party when I landed in New York and saw two very close friends and they virtually sat around the bar with me and they said, nobody gives a fuck about philosophical shit, just so you know. And I said, oh, okay. Got the memo. And even though we do Tessa and we know we do, and they know it too. What they're saying is the audience in general, like really just wants what they want. And from me in particular, they want recipes and cooking. Mm. So your purpose and calling will go all over the place, right? Like whether you were in Cali or New York or Austin or Dallas or Chicago, Miami, Honolulu, wherever you are, be there and just know that if you're searching for so much and you're like, grabbing at straws and you just can't figure out what your shit is sometimes it's right in front of you and you've sort of been pushing it away because of past traumas fears the thoughts and judgments of others or just like for me it was just not a very friendly space 10 years ago and I you know I had like really bad experiences and now that I'm a little older and wiser which all of us can be you make these better decisions and talk them out with a friend, you know, in, in Okinawa, where the term Ikigai comes from, typically the elders, a centenarian in the neighborhood, for instance, is seen as the most sacred person in the entire village or town. And they respect them. They honor them. They pray to them. That person has their Ikigai. But it is important for us to find it, but also like don't lose sleep over it if you don't know what it is yet. Because I know you've been working with Rosie for so long now and it feels like you guys are a team and it flows and it makes sense. And what a beautiful opportunity because you ladies have created your own journey. You know, it's not like somebody mapped it out for you. And that is truly unique in the area of or in the era, I suppose, of like everybody being a little bit confused about their life's purpose and calling, we will make it much more difficult than we need it to be. And so if you revert back to why you got started in the first place, like before all those mean yoga people came, 
And before the Haterville, you know, came to me in different ways, I'm like, ew, stay away from me. Like, I'm just going to sit over a stove and sweat for the rest of my life. I get it. I can get old and withered and do that. You know, it's easy. (laughs) But when we start asking so much of ourselves, like that isn't our calling, I think we can get really lost in the shuffle. And I, I think everybody's supposed to go through that, to be honest, because it's better to have, to have tapped into like 10 different areas or experienced all those branches on your tree before you go back to like that root cause of what, you know, got you like sprouting from the beginning. I love that. I just think it's so interesting when I think about seeking, when I think about purpose or calling, I think about maybe what some people would consider outliers or anomalies, people like Phil Knight, you know, the creator of Nike. Yes. Yeah. Like, it seems like we're born with this desire or just this intrinsic, not even questioning, like, I want to make the shoe. (laughs) Why the shoe? I don't know. But it's like, there's this thing that seems just so innate. I guess I feel kind of jealous of people like that. And I'm like, what is that secret sauce? Because I feel like I'm this fish and I am a Pisces. So I do meander a lot towards the shiny things, but I wonder what it would be like to have that sense of knowing, you know, that sense of knowing. You do talk about that a lot in the book too. You know, knowing is like that superpower. We talk about that. And so does Dr. Wayne Dyer. And I'd never put the two together until sometimes I listen to him when I'm having a really bad day, which I recommend everyone do. Like just listen to his voice. You can get him on um, YouTube or Hay House, like has recordings, books, audiobooks. You can get him on Audible. So it's interesting because Tess, I read Shoe Dog many years ago before this movie air came out. And I had always had a fascination with the Jordan years because it's like the analog years. And also Rosie and I talk about basketball a lot because it's like a secret love of ours. I went to a ton of Brooklyn Nets games as soon as I moved back to New York. And it was like, I felt so at home. But at the same time, Phil had a really exacerbating story on the beginning of his career and how he was all about this Japanese running shoe. Mm -hmm. So even his own purpose morphed and you know, he was selling them out of the back of his car. I'm sure he did not have money to start. And his father had to lend him money, which I poke my dad about all the time. I'm like, see, even Phil. And you know, what's funny is my dad loves those stories that you talk about, Tess. Like he read Steve Jobs' bio. Walter Isaacson wrote that book, amazing autobiographer. And he did not stop talking about it for like years afterwards. And same with Phil. But what we find in these men, and I'm sure you can say the same thing about like, say Bezos, and he started Amazon strictly for books at the beginning, is that the sheer willpower to get things done, whether they were a kind person or not, didn't matter to them. And for women like us, I do think most people listening to the Radically Love pod will say they agree with us. We think it's better to be a good person and a kind person and a loving person with compassion. And I could be wrong, like maybe there's some assholes out there too, but I do think that we, this stuff matters to us so much so that you're not going to be a bulldozer with, you know, let's just say you wanted to start your own yoga mat line. I don't see you being aggressive 
And so in Western society, we're taught by all these older white men that we're supposed to be Elon Musk. And, you know, we're not because we're beautiful, shiny, bright females that are doing different things that feed and nourish our soul, whether it's plants or cats or meditation and yoga, maybe it's cooking. I mean, smoothies and cocktails are what seem to be doing good for me recently. But what I'm getting at is it doesn't matter what you do. Somebody's always going to hate on you and they're always going to judge. And rest assured, Phil and Steve Jobs, they they all got ripped into. And Mm -hmm. maybe they didn't. This was their superpower is that they just didn't care about what other people thought about them. And they didn't care about being kind. And that's how they got shit done. It's like mm-hmm. almost like having the machine, men's machine mentality. Women can certainly be the same way. However, I think by nature, we're a bit softer and we have a lot of emotion tied to what we do. And we also want to feel good about what we're doing. So you'll see like, I love that CEO of Spanx, for instance. She, her name is Sarah Blakely and she just seems like the most beautiful woman because she's always touting inspiration. But at the same token, she has like a normal life with kids, a normal husband. And yet she's the CEO of an extremely powerful and successful business. So sometimes the models and the machines that we see and we look at, even though they feel like they're societal norms, they're not for everyone. You know, I would much rather live in New York and Hawaii and Cali, maybe Tokyo or Australia and have like peace, cats, food, bar method, yoga, like meditation and and not worry so much about the future. And I think it's okay for us to take that pause when we want to figure out where you want to go. Because Tess, honestly, you're already on your way. You know what I mean? Like it's, this isn't a bad like place to be because I think podcasting is just starting and blossoming and people are being weeded out really fast. And Rosie and I talk about Tim Ferriss all oh, the time. Tim Ferriss, yeah. Tell, me, tell me what you say about Tim Ferriss. <laughs> well, we used to, he used to write at Men's Health about the same time that I did. Mm. We have a lot of the same wheelhouse of editor-in-chief, like design. I'm sure it was all the same team. But he has a wonderful podcast on like how to make a podcast successful. So I always encourage people to listen to that and to say to themselves, if Tim can do this, I can do it too. It might take you a really long time to get, like we were just saying, like it's taking me 20 years to get a cooking show. Oh my God, I'm going to be fucking 80 by the time they sign me. So (laughs) we just have to... I'm right there with you guys is what I'm trying to say, Tess. Like, you're not alone. Yeah, I appreciate that. Also, I think the key takeaway for me in terms of what you just said, there are many, but what jumped out at me was being mindful of who our mentors are. Who are we looking up to and who are we learning from? Because when we don't see ourselves in the people that we're looking up to and we bend ourselves to conform to that idea of success, it can oftentimes be a misalignment in terms of like, that's not my path. And I don't have to muscle my way to the top. I don't have to find this intrinsic 
passion. Well, I mean, I wouldn't say that, but it doesn't have to be this thing that I have to create that has to be like a billion dollar shoe industry, right? Like I could look for people who have been in my industry who who are successful in the way that I define success. It doesn't have to be what society says. Absolutely. And Tess, you are also right in another way where it's like surround yourself with the women that applaud you. Like Rosie and I have been that for each other for I think five or six years now. And if you don't hang with women that are going to applaud you and just be your biggest fans along the way, because they know how awful this journey is going to be and how beautiful it will always be too, or not always, but saying how wonderful and awful and beautiful it can be at the same time. I was friends with people that did not support my path and that were evil. And I was scared to hang out with them. And I just said to myself, why am I doing this? You know, I'm 40. Like, I don't want to be friends with anybody who doesn't understand my path anymore. And let that be words that somebody might need to hear today. It's like, you can also let go, like the trees let go of leaves. I always tell people to use that as your analogy to like, shed and let go because every single year the trees let go of their leaves and by necessity I think we have to do the same thing with our friendships with jobs with toxic people I mean I live in a lot of fear and anxiety half the time because I have a job unfortunately that is not stable and as a writer I'm always put up against, you know, the hardest of times. Like right now we're going to go through the writer's strike and I am a member of SAG. And that means that we're not going to go out and pitch shows and we're going to be mindful of the current climate. And just before that, you know, we were in another place where having an audio book with Audible was more fruitful than having a physical book. And so The climate does change all the time, number one. Number two, those who will adapt, like Darwin's theory, to change are the ones who will thrive. And then number three, it's important that you really roll with people that will support you and love you. And Mother Teresa has that beautiful quote where it's like, people will take advantage of you. They will think that you are a thief and a liar and you will change and live and do the things that you want to do anyway. Mm -hmm. And then at the very end of her, one of my favorite quotes by her, it says it was never between you and them anyway. People are always going to think X, Y, or Z about you. And you absolutely cannot live your life in the darkness just because you're afraid of what these mean people or nasties or maybe dishonest people, people that embellish circle talkers. Like we we have them all laid out in the book. The types of people that you should really veer away from. And Wayne Dyer says that because we can't choose our family, that our friends are kind of like that blessing that we get because our we can't choose, you know, who our family is. So choose your friends wisely. And I think you could make your life even easier if you just take that step to like move forward without the fear of what others may think and let go of these other people if they are not serving you in a positive way. Yeah. Very good advice. Thank you. I was hoping we could touch on matcha. I know it's something that's very dear to 
you and in terms of the ceremony of matcha and comes from Japan. And I loved hearing about it in the book. And I, because I lived in Japan for a few months, I had the opportunity to have the experience of that tea ceremony in Japan. And then I remember coming home and wanting to bring all of these traditions with me. Like you were reminding me of all these things that I got to experience. And I was like, oh yeah. And there's the cat and and there's like the way that we make food and we sit around the table, the, is it called a kotatsu where it's like under the, oh, said, the warming table. Yeah. yeah. Those are so popular. I just think that it's so cool that you lived in Japan, by the way, and that you experienced so many blessings and traditions that you remember. And it does sometimes take listening to a book to rekindle a spirit in you that you forgot that you had. So I really, I, I want you to tap into that, Tessa, because maybe you're supposed to go back to Japan. I mean, so many people are there right now. This is the matcha I use all the time. It's this little matcha love organic tin. And it's, I guess people ask me like, what do I do for my beauty routine? And most of the time I, I like to think it's because I drink matcha instead of coffee and I work out every day and I try to go to a steam room versus a sauna works better for me. I use vitamin C serum, sunscreen, but I always go back to the matcha every morning as part of my like ritual. So it is true. I have not had a cup of coffee in almost, I would say eight years. And I don't know why, but I, I think I have an aversion to it now. So matcha makes you feel good because it's full of L-theanine, which is an amino acid that keeps you relaxed and calm at the same time. And there's still caffeine, so you do not want to drink it past three, just advice for anybody who's drinking matcha. And also when you're getting a latte at Starbucks, it's not really matcha. It's green tea powder that's been doused in sugar and who knows what else. And so you really should try the real stuff from Japan before you tout that you're a matcha queen. It's important for people to learn where it comes from. It comes from Japan. It's a shade grown tea leaf, sencha tea leaf that has been harvested and then steam dried ground on a stone and is bright green. You're ingesting the whole leaf. So therefore you will get all the nutrients straight away instead of steeping. Steeping will only get you trace amounts of nutrients. It feels invigorating. It has come by way of the monks. I mean, that's where we learned about matcha. They made tea ceremony much more realistic, particularly a man named Senoriku. He made it more accommodating to the masses because at one point, matcha was just for royalty, the rich, the samurai, mm. and you know, it's a beautiful history and culture. And I do really wish to, and I speak about this in the book quite a bit. You know, a lot of my book sales were probably in a way diluted by those who are non-Japanese going to the culture and saying that they were a self-proclaimed expert. And, you know, if you're an anthropologist or a researcher, a scientist, like maybe you've studied there for many years as a journalist, I get it. But there are also a lot of people that just take from Japan or India or different parts of the world because it's cool. And it's my job as a minority marginalized woman to share that, you know, although it is nice, like you have to give credit to the ancestral people from 
the soil. So I learned a lot of my practice of matcha through my great aunt Takuko. She is close to Kagoshima in Japan, where you can get some of the best matcha in the world, which is Southern Japan. The soil is volcanic soil. So it really helps to enrich the tea leaves. And then fairly close to Kyoto, there's a town, Uji, that most people speak about publicly, where you can get other really good matcha. But Matcha Love is a Japanese company from Itoen. And my mentor there has been with me for about eight years, Rona. And I think it's important, like you said, to surround yourself with people that educate you well on well-versed in the area of expertise you'd like to be in. Because we do live in a world where experts are now dead. And we just have people like shooting guns blazing on TikTok, like they fucking know shit about finance. I doubt it. And you're probably 20. And it's like, dude, what the fuck are you guys doing? If you really want to be an expert on finance, well, my God, why not get an MBA and move out to New York and work on Wall Street for 10 years? But we just don't seem to care about those things anymore. So all this to say... I've lived the matcha experience for about, I guess, since I was a kid going to Japan at five. But I don't tout it like I'm the fucking the boss. I just share it like it's part of my culture. So I'm happy to share. But, you know, there are people out in Japan that are working in these tea fields day after day. And like, those are the masters. Like I've interviewed dozens of farmers and they are the masters The monks are a whole nother story that I write about quite a bit that are parallel to the tea farmers in Japan. They have far more knowledge than any American touting to be a monk or a former monk will. And they don't want to share it with you openly on TikTok or Instagram or YouTube Mm -hmm. or Facebook because their job is to do inner work and prayer and pray for those who are in dark places because they believe and know that they do exist. So there's a lot there to take in. But when I work with the monks, they're always Japanese. Like sometimes they're in monasteries out in Italy. But the work that we've done collectively in journalism for NHK World um, news programs and articles I've written for, you know, say like Vogue or Well and Good, I try my very best to be professional about it and not to take advantage of other people's vulnerabilities while selling shit to them that they don't need. Mm -hmm. So I think that's where culturally we can get really problematic with people taking from those, from many areas or claiming to be experts in areas. So back to what we were saying earlier, Tessa, it's important to do your homework on where people come from just as much as you can't really just believe them anymore. It's just as important as who you're surrounding yourself with or say where you're getting your matcha from or your information, especially in the the area of spirituality. Wow, boy, the sun fucking came out, didn't it? (laughs) (laughs) It does look like it's getting brighter and brighter as you talk. (laughs) My back back is like burning. (laughs) Well, and I can't believe it's been an hour. Uh, I can can sit here and listen to you talk all day. Um, (laughs) If it's okay, I would like to ask, well, I guess it's kind of like, 
You know how at the end of the podcast, Rosie will ask, and I'm sure she's asked you this multiple times, how you were radically loved. What do you radically loved? I definitely want to touch on that, but I think it's such an interesting concept in, because I'm in the part of the book right now where you're talking about your relationship with your mom and like that, it's like a cultural Japanese thing where you don't really outwardly express, I love you necessarily. Yes. But you, yeah. I think you're you're talking about gambate. It's like keep going. Yeah. That's so beautiful, Tess. Like you really picked up on like cool stuff in the book. But go on. Where were you? Where were you going with the well, thought? I don't know if I have a super specific question, but I was I was curious about this question that we typically end with. How do you feel radically loved, and what do you radically loved? Because the word love in I mean, I don't know if there is a word for love in Japanese. I didn't get that far in my language studies. I'm sorry if I don't know. But I was at that point in the conversation where you're like, my relationship with my mother, she would say gambate. It was like, this is how I'm expressing love to you. I don't know if I specifically have a question. I mean, I'd love to hear what your answer is, of course, to what do you radically loved? How do you feel radically loved? But I wanted to tie in your relationship with your mom and that idea of our language, the English language doesn't always translate, right? In, oh, in yes. different languages. There's so many untranslatable words in Japanese culture. So like komorebi, mono no aware, wabi-sabi is some of my favorites. Gambate was a phrase my mother always said when I was leaving the house or going to a project or killing it on a show, getting on a plane. It translates to do your best or always do your best. And kyotsukete, which means take care of yourself. And, you know, kokoro means heart in Japanese, but you don't typically ever say I love you. So most Asian kids, if their mother is from a different culture, I think they'll be able to relate to me and knowing that laundry, food on the table, taking me to school every day, signing me up for soccer and ballet and surfing and volleyball, track, swimming, all of these things were love. It's not like they're going to coddle you and tell you. And my father was from Poland. He came here on a boat when he was 11 to Connecticut, actually. And so they both had the hard knock childhood. While my mother is the brightest light that I know, she's also a devout Buddhist and a realist. And she comes from a Buddhist Japanese culture. There are so many different sects. And I'm I'm going to spell this for people because it's hard to say. S-E-C-T-S, a sect. There's so many different sects in Buddhism. And my mother taught me that early on that like our sect is based right in in Kyoto. And so that's where I did a lot of my studies with a reverend out at his family temple. And yes, you can be a Buddhist reverend. Uh, there's so much knowledge around uh, Buddhism and spirituality that like we have just touched the surface with this book. Not even, like maybe a speck of sand. But it is true that my mother never said, I love you or coddled me as a child. But it didn't mean that she didn't love me so deeply. We had a very tough relationship. And as I was saying before, like, I think a lot of kids had a hard relationship with their mom. You know, when I watched that movie, oh God, Lady Bird. I mean, yeah, I I wanted to die. I was like, oh my God, this is all I needed to see my whole life. (laughs) 
I can't believe that we both remember that moment. Oh, yeah. So good. Right. Excellent. And I said, where are all the female directors at? Cause this is what we fucking need. Yeah. God bless her. I got to look up her name again, but it's rough, man. My mom is like such a wonderful woman. She's still a school teacher. She still teaches at the Buddhist temple. She taught at various high schools for many years in San Diego. And she even sat down and listened to this book, knowing that it did not paint her in golden light. I'm not going to sit around and talk like everything was great. I'd never do that in a book, especially not now. We've already opened that can of worms. So, but I think there's a beauty, like we said earlier, in that darkness and in the tough times and in the suffering and the moments of like two people completely not seeing eye to eye. I had a Japanese American experience in the US and she is Japanese from Japan. She'll never, and people say this all the time now, but they're like, when you come from two different cultures and you have children, more than likely, you will not know what the experience of your child is going to be like because they won't look like you. So that's an important facet of this book, too. If anyone's struggling with identity, mixed child syndrome, never feeling like you belong, like always feeling like you just are the odd man out in some way or another, it's a good book to relate to. I would say with Radical Love, I mean, I found it through pets of all things. Like I realized that my relationship with my cats, like I was telling Tessa before we started that I have the boy and my mom has the girl from these two abandoned blackies. They're black cats that were found in a bodega basement in the Bronx and they were terribly sick, probably would not have made it if somebody didn't rescue them. God bless the woman that did. And it's what connects me and my mom more than anything and she called me yesterday to tell me that she wrote a book review for me and said that it was like a book that she really learned from, that you can live in the dark and in the light. And that there was a lot of Buddhist takeaway that a Buddhist woman in her 70s like didn't really even come to realization on. So that was a nice note to end on. Yeah. And I would say that I really believe that pets are the most radical love that I've experienced and they don't judge or talk or say anything. And I know Rosie and I bonded over her dogs and my cats before. And it's just an amazing, like almost like next level spiritual experience that I encourage people to like really be grateful for their pets because sometimes they're going to be the only thing that you have left at the end of the day. Mm, that's so beautiful it gave me chills just hearing you answer that question literally goosebumps. oh uh, oh i put I have the picture of this even though it's backwards oh, it's there it is it's cute but it's like it's so different this is the one before there's so many now but this is the one that people are curious about more like food and matcha and wellness but we didn't even get to talk about this art but tessa the time always flies with you ladies so i know Thank you for having me. We'll just have to do it again. We just need to keep doing it again because we do need to talk about the art. <laughs> Yay, I'm excited. I love talking to both of you ladies. So thank you for having me. And 
for always being a rock for anything that we do. And I miss you and Rosie and please tell her I said hi. I definitely will. Absolutely. I guess one thing, there's a call to action that I'd like to make to listeners and that is to leave a positive review of Spirited, a modern guide to ancient spiritual wellness and wisdom, which is, as Candace noted, an audible original. So you get to hear Candace's lovely honey melodious voice speaking to you the whole time <laughs> Great sell, Tessa. it's easily found at audible.com slash spirited and uh they created that link for us because they said they had just really started tapping into the original sector for spirituality so I think it's a I although it may not be my full forte I think it is really interesting when you hear somebody speaking about their POV on, I mean, I grew up Christian dad, Buddhist mom. So like our POV is, is through the book and it's wildly different. Yeah. I love it. It's so good. I highly recommend it. If you're in the market for your next health and wellness book, or just if you love Candace, like I do, it's well worth it. So please check it out. Anything else you want to say? No, that's it. Leaving a five-star review is the best. And we need more of those reviews as authors to keep our projects going. So thank you for saying that. And Rosie and I talk about that often. Is like, if you support women in books and their books and buy their books and share their books, then we are able to do more of these beautiful projects for all of you because we genuinely, like, that's what we're put on this earth to do. Yeah. So good. Mic drop. Mic drop moment. Let's leave it at that. Thank you, everyone, for listening. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to the Radically Loved Podcast. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook at Radically Loved Rosie, on Instagram at Rosie Acosta, and Twitter at Rosie Acosta. By the way, this is original music by DJ Taz Rashid. You can follow DJ Taz on Spotify and check out the best music for yoga and meditation. This has been a Mod Pod Studio production. Check them out at www.modpodstudio.com.